Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. You're looking at Parshat Kitetze this morning. We're in uh, the largest collection of halakha, of Jewish law, that we have in all of Torah, this Parsha. We are looking at the last third, as we are for the rest of this year. We're in the third year of the triennial reading, so we're looking at the last third of every Parsha. Next year, after right, Simchas Torah, we'll start looking at the first third of every Parsha, which we haven't seen in three years. In three years, exactly. It's very exciting. <laughs> See, it's much more exciting to read this way. <laughs> um, so we're going to look a little bit out of order this morning. Rather than starting at the beginning of the last third, I can give you chapter and verse. We're going to start at chapter 25, verse 17. Would you like to read, please, Bert? Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. How undeterred by fear of God, he surprised you on the march when you were famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when the Lord your God grants you safety from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. All right. Zachor, remember. What are we supposed to remember? What Amalek did to you on your way out of Mitzrayim. We started this conversation last week. I'm sorry Laura's not here. She's going to have to listen to the podcast. Um, because we started this conversation last week. In the rules of war, are there any exceptions right, to the rules of war, to the laws? And we, what I came up with off the top of my head was, well, there is the special case of Amalek, which seems to be different than right, all of the other wars. And here it is. And this week's Parsha. This is, you see, this is how Torah works. It shows up this week uh, for us to talk about a little bit w- with a, a purpose in mind. So, So, remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. What did Amalek do? Let's remember what Amalek did that we're supposed to remember. Because it doesn't say it here. Oh, yes, it does. Yeah, <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Sorry. Came to the back of the group. Exactly. Killed the women and children who were... Came women. down to the back and cut down the stragglers. Who are the ayef, the agea? Who do you suppose those are? Who are the stragglers? The elderly? The little ones who can't keep up? Possibly the women who have to carry them? The sick people? For sure. Disabled? Everybody who, the weakest of the group, those who for sure are not fighting, right? The stragglers are not fighters. So there's no way it could have been misunderstood that, that this was a sneak attack by Amalek, right, to win. This, this was an attack that it seems even in the ancient world was vicious in a way that was just seen to, and I know... Like when we say the rules of war, even now, the Geneva Convention, you can, you can shoot them in the face, but you can't, right? So I know it sounds crazy, you know, wait a minute, what do you mean this is more vicious? But it's true. They're, they're in, in every world society, there's an understanding about what you do and what you don't do, even in a time of war, right? These are war crimes. where We now have a term for that, right? War crimes, and there's a way to try them because we understand that there's some things that are just beyond the pale, even in a time of war. And this seems to be the case in early Israel. It wasn't an attack to win, right? It was an attack to decimate the Israelites. Because when you're cutting down stragglers first, what's your intention? If you're cutting down the the sick and the old and the infirm first, what what does it seem your intention might be? To To wipe them out. You're provoking them. Yeah, and you're fighting. So, well, for sure that's going to provoke a fight, but you can provoke a fight from the front. Yeah, it's cowardly. So either it's cowardly or it's efficient. Right? I'm serious. Like, Either it's cowardly, because if you're trying to pick a fight, you, you pick a fight with the people who have the swords, right, and the arrows. That, that's understood in war. You engage in battle. When you cut down the infirm and the sick and the aged and the little ones, that's genocidal. 
that, that your intent is not just to pick a fight. Your intent is to wipe everybody out. Usually those people, maybe they get killed, maybe they don't, but they're booty. You don't, you don't slaughter everybody. So it seems that this is a memory in early Israel of a genocidal kind of attack. And in the archaeological record, we have in uh, Sumerian that we talked about last week, um, we have in from the 22nd century BCE, the 22nd century BCE, we have from Sumer uh, a parallel that talks about the chief god commands the king, whose name I can't even say, Utegal, um, the king of the city-state of Uruk, in Hebrew the cognate would be Erech, the king of that city was to, quote, destroy the name of the Guchins, um, who was a hated enemy who had invaded Sumer and apparently had ruled extremely cruelly in Sumer. And the king was said to, to be commanded by the god to expel them, and the king did expel these people, apparently, um, and then was to blot out, to destroy the name of this people. So destroying the name isn't about erasing their name out of textbooks, right? It's erasing the people. So it seems that what we have here in this memory of Amalek is something about this same kind of thing. Destroying the name, destroying the people, Israel. And because of that, it is this big deal made here about Zechor, remember. Remember what Amalek did to you. It's not just take note of it and tell your children. What is Zechor at Asher Salacha Amalek? Remember, always in this context, kind of a context, comes with an action. Remember and, here we get it, right? We're going to get it later, right? Um, blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Lotishkach. Now it gets said the other way. Don't forget. All right. We're also supposed to remember Shabbat. Correct. So, so remember, in our tradition, is not just about remembering. Remembering comes with an action. It comes with something you do, right? Um, and that's very, very early. It's right here. It's very early that we get remember and then do this. Um, remember Shabbat and keep it. Right, made out of the barbed wire of the camps. They make pins um, that say Zechor, remember. Um, and again, still for us, remember does not mean take note of it in your history book and then make sure your kid reads it. Zechor, what does Zechor remember? The Holocaust, the Shoah, what does it mean to us? What would you fill in? Remember and what? And never again. Remember and do not let it happen to anybody else, is how we progressive Jews interpret that, yes? yes? That it's not just us. Genocide is not unique to us. It might have been uniquely well done in our case, but it's, it's not unique. Um, and for us, it's unique, obviously. And each person's suffering, each people's suffering is unique. I don't mean in any way to deter from that. What I'm saying is Zechor for us remains active as remember so that you act in such a way to X, Y, Z. Here it's blot out Amalek. We're not, that's not, I don't believe, the, obviously the action on the other side of Zechor for us. But it is an active word. And there's something about this business of blotting out Right, the name we see it in 2200 BCE. That and in the 1940s. So this, you know, this blotting out to destroy the name is very old, and I believe, you know, and many scholars believe tied to this idea that blotting out Amalek, you know, it means Amalek. That that should just disappear, and it doesn't mean the word; it means right the people yes Doesn't name also relate to like the essence so of something we we use name just as you name something it's it's a label here it's not used as label 
Um, right. So in Exodus 17:14, we get, I will utterly block out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So it is explicitly stated in Exodus that that um, the book Shmot names, right? Shmot in that book called names in Hebrew, uh, we get this. We get the statement by God: I will utterly block out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So name and actual, you know, personhood seem to be linked. They are the same. That's what that's what name points to. So if we take now flip that, we go to Bert's point, which is when I say your name, I'm not just saying your name, right? Name has something. What is the first thing God asks Adam to do? Name Name all the other creatures. Why? Who cares? He could just kind of go, ooh, striped thing, come here. Like, right? But it isn't striped thing. It's zebra. (laughs) I learned that one then. This last trip. Zebra, right? So zebra, right? It has its own name. Is that Hebrew? Zebra? Yes. Zebra. Yeah, very. It's hard to remember, but. Um, <laughs> right. So you can write a children's book. A zebra named Deborah. so powerful. What we name our children is so powerful, and I still think that if my parents had known what Judith means, they would have named me Maria. <laughs> <laughs> so little did they know that possibly by naming you Judith, uh, it was going to be an accurate description, Yehudit, a, a Judah-S, <laughs> like a, a woman from Judah, right? Who knew? So... Um, well, naming, is, naming, is, naming is an act of power. Naming is an act of power because we call by naming someone and then designating them that, we then say, this is your essence. Or may this be your essence, right? In the case, you, when you name a baby, Rena, <laughs> Joy, you can't know. Is this a, you know... Bipolar, depressed child. Like you don't, you're, you're not naming them Rena because they're so happy. I mean, they're just born. They're broccoli, right? Like they don't do anything except cry and poop and whatever. So when you name it Rena, you are naming it because it is aspirational. You wish for them that their essence be about joy. Or you name them after the tradition. Which will further the tradition. Okay. Also thank you. So, Judith, you keep leading us to our next oh, I'm sorry. place. No, thank you. That is a great segue. I have a question before we go on. Yes. Yes. Oh, by the way, my daughter is Rina Leora. I was going to say, please don't tell me your daughter is Amaleka. <laughs> I was like. Rina Leora, Twilight. I have a question about Amaleka. Thank you. If I have another one, I'll do it. Amaleka. If we take a look at the lineage of Israel, because we have all those son of, daughter of, son of, daughter of. Are there any Jewish heroes or heroines who are descended of Amalek? No. Thank you. Yes. So that means the name's forgotten. Well, it's, it's interesting. Remember to forget it. <laughs> except, except we don't forget it because we recite it every year at a holiday. To remember. Which holiday? Which holiday? Yes, it's in March. Purim. And so how is it tied to Purim? Oh. Haman. That Haman came from the Amalek. Uh-huh. He's wow. called an Agagi, an Agagite, which is very hard to say in English. So he's an Agagi. He's an Agagite. And Agag was king of Amalek. Oh. So Haman... Y'all didn't do anything there. Like, really? Right. So, so Haman descends from Amalek. And so he and his sons are erased. Right? And then everybody's slaughtered. We, we never read that part of the Megillah. But the Jews take revenge and slaughter like hundreds of thousands. Now, let's be clear. Before I go any further, let's be very clear. It never happened. <laughs> Let's be very clear. That ne- th- that is a made-up story. It is clear. Cl- whatever we say about this, we do or don't know. I know that, but that is completely made up. The Purim Haggadah, which maybe I'll teach in March, is made up. It is a fantasy of Jewish power that we think actually was satirical. 
<laughs> it was a satire, right? So you've got Mordechai and Esther, and who was worshipped in Babylonia? Marduk and Ishtar. Uh-huh. Marduk, Mordechai, Ishtar, Esther, you've got the Jewish parody making fun of Babylonia. So, so slaughtering everybody at the end is just a Jewish fantasy of what if, you know, we, you know, whatever. But it's really not even to be taken seriously as a teaching lesson. It's just a satire. Um, and I, maybe in March I'll explain what some of the theory is about why that was written. Some prayer books have uh, a reading called the Seven Remembrances, which is supposed to be the seven most important things to remember, and this is one of them. Don't forget. Don't forget to remember. To remember um, what Amalek did or, to you. Or remember to forget. All right. Let's look at verse 5. Mm. When brothers dwell together and one of them dies and leaves no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall unite with her. He shall take her as his wife and perform the levier's duty. The first son that she bears shall be accounted to the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his brother's widow, his brother's widow shall appear before the elders in the gate and declare, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name in Israel for his brother, and he will not perform the duty of a levir. The elders of his town shall then summon him and talk to him. <laughs> and talk to him. Talk to him. If he insists, saying, quote, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull the sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and make this declaration, this shall be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house, and he shall go in Israel by the name of the family of the unsandaled one. Okay. Just saying. Just saying. All right. When two brothers live together, meaning, you know, it's a extended family unit, uh, and one of them dies and leaves no son, the wife of the deceased will not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother will be with her and take her as a wife and perform the lever's duty from the noun brother-in-law. Um... The first, and the first son that she bears shall be accounted to the dead brother that his name not be blotted out in Israel. So here we go back to, we've seen the negative side of blotting out. Here's the, the, the positive side, and I don't mean good and bad. I mean, you know, the, the flip side is, and so if an Israelite dies and their name is at risk of being blotted out, then this is what's done to ensure that he has issue. It's counted as his son, and then that son can inherit and do all the things that a son <coughs> is supposed to do. At this point, do people have last names? No. This is no, so I'm going, I'm going there. So, um, so, the, so the idea from Torah time seems to be that, that death is not really... It's, it's the end of us, but it's not the end of our existence completely, right? Um, and so keeping a deceased person's name on the earth or under the heavens seems to be a way of keeping their spirit connected with the living. So when we say, and we're going to get there, to Kaddish, you know, that, um, that their neshama should be tzor b'tzor bound up within the bonds of life. That's what it means, right? That, that when we say their name, they're not here. And no, we're not pretending. We're not in denial. They're not here. But they are present in a way that our tradition, and we're going to talk about it, that our tradition really understands as being powerful and important and a way to stay connected and to keep that person connected with us. Why is it that Jews do not name uh, their children after living people? All right, so we're going to do a parking lot because this is going to get, I know, I know, y'all, this is going to get interesting, so we're going to keep those. So, so we're going we're gonna to keep a parking lot that we're, that we're going to come back to, okay? So why not after the living, okay? 
It seems to me that the word blotted out is quite different from forgetting. <laughs> you know, blotted out is really an active way of, of forgetting. It's just stronger. So I'm wondering why they use blotted out here. Because it seems that when the name stops, if the name were to go away, now that person is truly blotted out. They're gone. If their name stays, they're not. Like we just said, that they, they remain part of the community, part of that family. Their, their spirit stays connected to those who are still alive by invoking their name. Their name goes away, they're gone. Seems to be the implication. To Judith? that point, Stephen Rubin has always said, our bodies die, our relationships never do. That's right. And, and, that, and this is a way of saying, we're still in relationship yes. to that person because I'm still actively saying the name. I'm remembering the name. Richard? The modern analogy to blotting out is perhaps what happened in Stalinist Russia when you had a purge in the 30s or 40s and somebody was purged from the Communist Party, all, like all the books, in the, all the official books and texts of the Soviet Union would get reprinted with that person's name missing. Like they were literally just removed Gone. from the cultural history of the Soviet Union, and, as if they never lived. And, and so Torah's trying to... If and there was the a picture, all the pictures they were photoshopped out, out right. the way they the did equivalent. in those days. Yeah. The pharaohs so, did that too. Right. They decimated the other pharaoh's statue, right? That happened to the woman who was pharaoh. Mm -hmm. They went in and, and destroyed all of the statues of her image. They destroyed, and there, there it's a lot about image. Um, for us, it's about name. So, so what you're talking about with the purge, <laughs> I can't help but think of the movie, sorry. Give me a second, I'll recover. Um, <laughs> when you're talking about the purge, th that's what this is trying to prevent. Because what Richard's talking about is it's so powerful. Like all of us just had this visceral reaction to what he said. Why? It's just a name in a book. Because we still get it. Don't we? We all went, right? Like, because we still get it. That when you take the name out, we, we then we're completely gone. Right? There will be some historical record of Amy Rose Bernstein, right? Somewhere, right? Un unless there isn't. And then I'm really gone. And, and we, st we still get that. This is the power of the name. And that is why she is, the, the widow is given the brother-in-law. It can, I know, feel the other way, and maybe sometimes it was the other way, but really what this is, is about is it gives her a son. Remember how important the son and the family name is? This, she's entitled to a son. This is the power of the story of Tamar. And... Just, just left my brain. Um, Tamar and Ruth, right? You know, so you know that Leverett marriage could could be a really powerful mechanism for part of the family that suffered some kind of tragedy to survive and to thrive. We have um, parallel uh, in the ancient world uh, where the brother-in-law or the father or the son of the, of the guy could... Actually, she was given to one of them. So does the, the English word leverage seems to have a relationship to, the, to what you're talking about? I don't know that. It seems like it to me that, that, the, I don't know. that the family would be leveraging their, their resources... It, in the the leveret marriage comes in from Latin, which is the brother-in-law. I don't know if that's leverage. I think of leverage as this: when you push down on this side, this lifts up. I, I don't know if there's a connection. I don't, I don't know Latin very well. So this may be the parking lot issue. Okay. But I remember my parents telling me that when somebody died, there was a veil over their face and their eyes. And that when you named somebody for them, that veil was lifted. Has anybody heard of that? No. Because my family was on my 
It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful metaphor. Is this, is this, it's a beautiful metaphor. Was this um, related at all to keeping the land within the family? Yes, absolutely. It was. It it was absolutely about he, this the dead man. If he had no sons, what would happen to his land? Now daughters could marry. Remember in Numbers, we get the the daughters of Solofchad. And Moshe goes to God, and God says, they've done justly by coming to you. They're right. They should inherit, but they can't marry outside the clan so that the land stayed with the clan. So, But it seems that in the ancient world, including ancient Israel, then a woman, a daughter, could marry someone. And it seems that he then, if, the, if she was doing it in order to keep the land in the family, he would take the dead brother's name. Yes. So... Because she married outside the family, the land is... Correct. So we're going to go to Bert's point. So if we have, and this is how they write in Talmud, when you're talking about uh, John Doe, Mm -hmm. it's Plony Ben Plony. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. So in the ancient world, right, your name was Plony Ben X, like whoever. Uh X being your father. So that was your last name. And then if there was any confusion, Ben Y. Plony, Ben X, Ben Y. If there's ever, you know, uh, a confusion. Like you could have Bert, son of David, and who knew, but from Duluth, Minnesota, there's another Bert, (laughs) son of David, right? How do you know which one is which? So you have to go back another generation. You didn't tack on a name. You went back a generation so that you're clear which Bert, son of David, are we talking about? Oh, Bert, son of David, son of Sam, got it, right? And so that was your name. So for a couple of generations, you know, your name hung around. So there was no female matrilineal, even though it was matrilineal. Or was it matrilineal? Before? It was matrilineal before this. Okay. And then it changed? This is the patriarchy taking over. Okay. Got that. Everything here, the patriarchy has already taken over. Mm-hmm. There are remnants. We have remnants, which you've missed when we did Genesis, but mm-hmm. hang around and we'll get there again <laughs> after some over. Um, and so there are remnants of the matriarchal tradition in Genesis. Um, and a tiny bit in Exodus, uh, but it's gone by this point. The patriarchy, yud Buffet has taken over as the chief male god, and it is now, and <laughs> we're not even going to go there. Okay, so Plony Ben X. So, so X stays, and sometimes Y stays, um, and, and that's your name. So this is why if... You know, when we talk about not blotting out the name or having it be forgotten is because you stay, you stay the, you're, you're here for at least another generation actively, right? Just as your family name. So if that's your family name, that's how your name stays around. But let's say, you know, it's, it's this generation over here, right? So now Plony Ben A. Right, you know, so, and then it would be Ben B, Ben X, Ben Y, right? So we're 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 a few generations now away from X, right? Well, then what do you do here, right? Like X is our X is already dropped out. So what you can do is instead of Plony, what do you do? X. Yeah. Right. So. So every time you bring the name back in, it stays a part, right, stays a part of, the, of the rotation. This is why we're so connected to naming names that have been in the family. This is how someone like me could still be named Rachel. Yes. Like, are you kidding me? This was how old? This text is how old? And Rachel's a major player. Like, so I'm named Rachel, right? Because, and it's not because of this Rachel. Well, I mean, it is because of this Rachel. But it's because my grandmother was Rachel. Rose here, which is why I'm Amy Rose, right? So, so this remains powerful to us. This, this idea that when we name for someone, they don't disappear, they stay connected, right? So every time 
my Hebrew name is said, right? Because we're talking about Hebrew, we're talking about, not Hebrew, we're talking about you know, Israelite culture and, and then Jewish tradition, which kept Israelite culture, right? So my Hebrew name is Rachel, but now traditionally, traditionally this is my Hebrew name, Rachel bat Avraham v'sara, because I was not born Jewish. I was converted as an infant, and so technically, I am Rachel bat Avraham v'sara. But because of our connection to all this stuff, and I was my father was raised Orthodox, so this comes out of Orthodox tradition. Um, it was understood that I was not to be called. Um, Rachel bat Avraham v'sara because it would be embarrassing to my family um, to announce publicly all the time that I was not their biological daughter. But also because it, then it didn't give anybody a chance to keep their name alive in the people of Israel. So I am. So when I sign legal documents, I am Rachel bat. I can't write in print. Yecheskel. Beshendo. So I am Rachel, daughter of Yechezkel, my father of blessed memory, and Shandel, my mother, um, who is also a convert. If someone's parents are actually Abraham and Sarah, then it's complicated. <laughs> so if someone's parents are actually Abraham and Sarah, they'd be Ben or Bat Abraham Sarah. Exactly. Would make them appear. <laughs> but they were. That's right. I mean, it's conceivable there is an Abe who married. But somewhere. Never. When I converted, um, I was, uh, I guess I could have been, you know, Richard, Ben, Abraham, and Sarah, but I was given the option of choosing a Hebrew name. Which I did. Usually you are. Yeah. Nobody would suggest Richard. Yeah. No, I mean that sounded terrible. I didn't mean that. There aren't many Richards in there. Yeah. No, but you know what I mean. Like we, we, you take a Hebrew name when you convert. Always. Yeah. So I chose. I chose Yonatan. So I'm Yonatan Ben. Right. So we. So so Ben Abraham de Sarah because. You know, right? We we go back to our earliest ancestors because you are adopted when you convert. Mm-hmm. You are adopted by the people of Israel, mm-hmm. and therefore become right, right a descendant um, of this family. Right. So um, so we we ch- so so the it's a connection. So so it's a connection. It's a connection back. So that every time I sign my Hebrew name, right, I am. Rachel Bat Yechezkel, my father, and you know someday, you know my mother's not doing well, but of Shandel uh, as well. So, um, so, so we are not just you're not just a name. When when I sign my name, right? I, these pictures come into a, not usually that one, but um, these pictures, she was a model, yes, um, come into, right, come, come clearly into my mind, right? You, you or your father? That's my father. Um, so these pictures come clear, and I'm not holding them up because it's me. Like the, we, we picture somebody. When we say daughter of somebody and somebody, we picture somebody. Right? So when it was time to name my daughter, I agonized about what to name her because the expectation was I would name for my grandmother, uh, who my father's mother, with whom I was very close, who all the grandchildren, I was the last of the grandchildren, so all the grandchildren had been born, and because they're older than me, all of them already had their kids, and all their kids were already named because she lived to 93. God bless her. So the expectation was because I was a geriatric pregnancy, as they call it in the business, um, right? Advanced maternal age. And, right, meant that the expectation was that I was going to name for my grandmother. But, like, but I felt like I needed to name for my father. So the expectation was there that I would name for my father and my grandmother, right? So it's just like, so this child's going to be 
Hadassah, <laughs> like, but like really, my father was Howard. Oh. How do you name for Howard? Hadassah. With the last name Bernstein. Hadassah? <laughs> Hannah? Hannah Bernstein. Okay, there were three Hannahs in our synagogue in Duluth. So it's like, really? So, okay, so a very supportive friend of mine wrote, have you considered Hermione? <laughs> very funny, right? So, <laughs> right? But this is the agony, is, you know, my father, here I am, my father's name will be gone if I don't name what did you name? for him. Heliana. Heliana. Heliana, which turns out would have been more descriptive of, of who she became. Um, but, so, there was just no H I could think of that was going to work for this poor child that's last name was Bernstein, right? You, you, there's no, like, hip H name you can put with Bernstein. You just can't. Heather Bernstein. Really? Like, um, so, you know, so then we think about, so, but I was in agony. I was just in agony for reasons that have nothing to do with rationality, right? That they're not rational. But I thought, you know, what did my father want more than anything in the whole wide world for me? Was, and he wanted me to hurry, um, was to have a daughter, or to have a child, have a son, have that baby already. I'm like, Dad, I have a couple things I need to do first, like get a career so I can feed her or him, whatever. So, um, and, but really all he wanted was a grandchild that was his, that was really his. He had two, three wives, you know, they had their kids, and, you know, he felt like all the grandkids were the other people's. He didn't have his own. And he really wanted that because he loved kids so much. So I said, you know, that's all he wanted, and I wasn't sure I was going to conceive. It took seven times of... Um, of inseminating to conceive. And so I decided to name her for that, for meaning rather than, you know, for his particular name. And so I named her Eli Anna. My God answered. I was naming her for him. He died. He died before she was born. Did and you know you were pregnant even? He died when I was 35. I was pregnant at 38. And it took me till 38 because I had to deal with grieving my and all of that. So um, so Eli Anna, my God, answered that that's all he wanted. And here's the answer. Is it the answer I would have written? No. The answer I would have written was that he would have been alive and had this amazing relationship with this kid who he would have spoiled rotten and um and and i didn't know that it wasn't going to be that i was going to go get a baby from china mm-hmm. like what but i but whatever it was Ali Anna, this is the way the universe answered we don't get to choose what the answer is um and so in this way um and her english name right is spelled like this and my father's hebrew name is yechezkel Ezekiel, and so for me, like nobody else knows now, all of you know, um, but it's the way that it's every time I write her name in English, which is most of the time I write her name, I don't usually write it in Hebrew, I'm writing that E, and that's for my father, and her middle name is Faye. Um, after my mama Faye, my grandmother, uh, Faye Bernstein, and who never had someone named for her, so the family, it was really important that, that Faye have someone named for her. Her Yiddish name was Fega, right, little bird. So it could have been Eliana Tsipora, you know, Eliana, but I've decided to stay with what my grandmother's name really was, right, her Yiddish name, so that she would have Yiddish in her name, because that's part of her heritage, too, because all she likes to talk about is the donor who's Egyptian, and how she's Egyptian, and she's Egyptian, and she's Egyptian, and I'm like, and you have a mother, who has a family. Do you need to see the scar? Like, you have a mother who, right, also uh, has a history. And that's Ashkenazi. And so she's got, she's got Yiddish, right, in her name. So it's Eliana Fega. Um, and so she's, uh, and so then every time I write her full name, right, what comes after Faye in my child's name is Bernstein. So my grandmother's name was Faye Bernstein. Um, and so 
That's all, that's all just from, what's your daughter's name, Eliana, right? Like there's, there's so much, My, mine is one, but every single one of you has these stories. Every single one of you. There's a reason you picked Yonatan. There's a reason you added roots to already being Yehudit. Right? Those are incredible stories about identity, about history. Right, but, in, uh, but in, in my case, just to give more context, I chose Yonatan not because it had anything to do, that name had anything to do with... Um, anyone in my family or any uh, person who I had known for a long time, mm-hmm. I had known, during that time, I just, within uh, a year or two of my conversion, I had read the, uh, the biography of Yonatan Netanyahu, you know, Bibi's oh. older brother, who was the one who was, he was the commando who was killed in the raid at Entebbe, so I read his biography and he was just such a, kind of like an amazing figure to me that I wanted to memorialize his name by taking it as mom. So that, there it is, right. right? So that says something so about you. Getting, he's not getting blotted out. Right, and that says something about who you are, right. that that, that that resonated exactly and that that particular story that particular person his story spoke to you and you wanted to embody that story like that in itself is a story right speaking of stories wait hang on hang on i see him you just told me that my i'm named after ishtar my name is esther no 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 um well, you shouldn't feel terrible, actually. It no, was, she was a very popular goddess in that part of the world, and probably, <laughs> and all of our ancestors worshipped her. Okay. All of them okay. worshipped Astarte. Yeah. I'll take that. All of them. Um, then when Yudhe conquers, right, when the patriarchy takes over, Yudhe takes over, and there is no more Astarte. But the Canaanites that gave rise to the Israelites would have worshipped Astarte, um, so the feminine right side of God. Uh, but it's that it's that they were making fun of Ishtar, so they picked a Jewish name that might have a derivative, right? It might be a derivative of Ishtar or Astarte, Esther, um, but um, but I don't. I don't think so. Esther, Esther is actually is associated with Hadassah, but we can, we can talk about that. We can do a whole lesson on Esther um, another time. But um, but it's not it's not co- cognitively right derived from from Ishtar, although linguistically it might be. Did so I see another hand? When I was born, my mother, who was a rebel against her parents, was under a lot of pressure to name me after her father who had passed away, my grandfather, whose name was Herman. And so she named me Herbert. But to be a rebel, she never called me that in her entire life. She said, I'll name him that, but I won't call him that. (laughs) And so she never called me anything but Bert, which is the name that I go by, except I'd never change it. And so I actually have two names. I have my legal name, which I sign on documents, which is traditional. And then I have my mother's rebel name. All right, so now we know the truth. But you do do carry, to to make your point, you do carry along that kind of history. Question to get back to the text. So the woman... Get back to the text. So so the the father, the name in the bin of the woman who marries the brother of her dead husband and has a child is Ben, the name of her dead husband. Yes, yes. Was there any thought of protecting the woman in a society where a single woman was in great danger? How many times do we see you shall protect the widow and the orphan? Yeah. But was this act? 100%. 100%. Do I love it that that's how she had to be protected? Was maybe marrying some jerk that, you know, was it? But we don't know she picked her first marriage. That's right. Right, right. Women didn't choose their partners. Their husband, I mean, their husbands, their fathers chose for them. So all of their marriages were, would have been arranged, including this one. But what it did was protect her by giving her a son in the br- dead brother's name, right, which, which she was, it, that's right. And she kept the land and she kept the wealth and she kept the material, whatever it was, of that dead brother. Otherwise, it, it would, could be taken over, right, by another part of the family. So it was absolutely to protect her. And notice what happens if he says no. 
Notice what happens if he refuses. He's publicly shamed. And then, ha- and then bears the epithet, the unshod one, the unsandaled one. She never gives the shoe back. <laughs> and the other shoe ain't going to drop. <laughs> what I'm hearing about the power of purging and blotting, and it makes me think of the tradition of disowning. Mm-hmm. and how powerful that is, and especially that image in Fiddler on the Roof when he disowns. Wow. So that that's purging you from the family? Mm-hmm. And, that's and another horrible one is when a child, for instance, is gay, mm-hmm. and the family sits Kaddish mm-hmm. for them. Now they're dead. Mm-hmm. You're dead to me. You're dead to me. So now they're dead, and their name doesn't get perpetuated at, at all, right? Um, and so it's the, what is used as a positive, you know, keeping the name alive by saying Kaddish, right, um, is the, f- the flip side of that is we'll say Kaddish for you because you are, you're as if you're dead. Uh, no. No, that's just no. customer. Yeah, right. Um, all right, so uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this book. If you haven't, especially some of y'all need to. Um, It's called The Book of Blessings, um, New Jewish Prayers for Daily Life, the Sabbath, and the New Moon Festival by Marsha Falk. So Marsha Falk, some of you may know Marsha Falk, um, took the traditional liturgy, gender-neutrified it, and completely reconstructed the blessing formula. If you look in Kol HaNeshama, early on, there's a whole thing that says you don't have to say Baruch Atah Adonai. There's lots of formulations. It's the one the rabbi settled on eventually, but there's lots that went before that one that were in use for a long time. Um, and Marsha Falk uh, moves to uh, something like Nevarech et Ein Hachayim. So she doesn't write Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, anywhere. She writes Nevarech et Ein Hachayim. Let us bless the fountain of life. Is she a rabbi? No. A scholar. She's a scholar and a poet. No, is she a rabbi? What's the last name? Marsha. Yeah, no. uh, B.A. in philosophy from Brandeis, Ph.D. in English and comparative literature from Stanford. Fulbright scholar, postdoctoral fellow at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Um, She has wonderful, wonderful stuff. Great poet, brilliant, brilliant Hebrew scholar. Um, So I'm going to read to you from her prayer book, but those of you who don't know it need to know about it. Uh, it's a little thick as a prayer book. Uh, so every time you complain at the high holidays about Kol HaNeshama, just remember. Um, and part of the reason it's big is because, here's an example. Nivarechet ein hachayim, mekor havana vehavchana. Let us bless the source of life, source of the fullness of our knowing. This is her birkat Torah. These are her Torah blessings. But look how much is on the page, right? So there's very little on the page. Um, which is why it's such a big book. But I want to read to you from her page on uh, Mourner's Kaddish. The traditional mourner's prayer known as the Kaddish magnifies and sanctifies the divine name. We sanctify life by expanding our namings, reflecting and honoring the diversity of our lives. We begin by silently calling to mind the names of all those whose absence we mourn. We continue by saying aloud the names of loved ones who have died in the past year. Mourners and those observing the anniversary of the death of a loved one say the names of those they are mourning. Names may include lineage, Rose, daughter of Pearl and Menachem Mendel, and terms of relation, my maternal grandmother, as well as terms of endearment. And in her prayer book, the very next thing after that introduction and before the Kaddish, I'm going to give you a copy, but I want you to listen first. Um, is a poem written by the Yiddish poet Zelda uh, and translated uh, into English by Marsha Falk. Uh, and she says about this poem that I'm about to read to you, Zelda's poem, which takes the form of a list of different, different aspects of our lives that give us our names, appears to be an elaboration on a rabbinic theme. In the Midrash, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, The rabbis teach that, quote, a person is called by three names, one that his father and his mother call him by, 
one that others call him by, and one that he is called in the book telling the story of his creation. The Midrash Tanchuma reads, one finds three names by which a person is called, one that his father and his mother call him by, one that people call him by, and one that he acquires for himself. The best of all is that which he acquires for himself. Um, in Hebrew, as in English, the word shame means not just name, but identity or reputation. The Bible proclaims a good name is better than fine oil. Names represent the variety of ways in which we are known to ourselves and to each other. Zelda's poem pays tribute to the multifaceted nature of the individual life and to the ways in which a life accrues meaning over time through its connections to others. L'chol ish yeshem. To every person, there is a name. Each of us has a name given by the source of life and given by our parents. Each of us has a name given by our stature and our smile and given by what we wear. Each of us has a name given by the mountains and given by our walls. Each of us has a name given by the stars and given by our neighbors. Each of us has a name given by our sins and given by our longing. Each of us has a name given by our enemies and given by our love. Each of us has a name given by our celebrations and given by our work. Each of us has a name given by the seasons and given by our blindness. Each of us has a name given by the sea and given by our death. Um, we read it, this poem often at Yisker, and often I've read it at funerals when it has felt uh, appropriate to the deceased and their family. And... Uh, for me, it is a powerful reminder that we are continuing to create liturgy all the time. And we continue to create customs um, that become to us rituals that are as important right, as, as any ritual um, that has been given to us by the generations before us. May we continue to lean into um, our own tradition and our own longing to connect that we can continue to write and create new ways of naming, new ways of hallowing those namings, new ways uh, of staying powerfully connected to this amazing business of being one of many generations. And may we inspire good things to be done in our own names. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.